0: Section 3 of On the Witness Stand This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ava'i in July 2021. On the Witness Stand Essays on Psychology and Crime by Hugo Münsterberg The Memory of the Witness, Part 1 last summer i had to face a jury as witness in a trial while i was with my family at the seashore my city house had been burglarized and i was called upon to give an account of my findings against the culprit whom they had caught with a part of the booty i reported under oath that the burglars had entered through a cellar window and then described what rooms they had visited To prove, in answer to a direct question, that they had been there at night, I told that I had found drops of candle-wax on the second floor. To show that they intended to return, I reported that they had left a large mantel-clock, packed in wrapping paper, on the dining-room table. Finally, as to the amount of clothes which they had taken, I asserted that the burglars did not get more than a specified list which I had given the police. Only a few days later I found that every one of these statements was wrong. They had not entered through the window, but had broken the lock of the cellar door. The clock was not packed by them in wrapping paper, but in a tablecloth. The candle droppings were not on the second floor, but in the attic. The list of lost garments was to be increased by seven more pieces, and while my story under oath spoke always of two burglars, I do not know that there was more than one. How did all those mistakes occur? I have no right to excuse myself on the plea of a bad memory. During the last eighteen years I have delivered about three thousand university lectures. For those three thousand coherent addresses I had not once a single written or printed line or any notes whatever on the platform. And yet there has never been a moment when I have had to stop for a name or for the connection of the thought. My memory serves me therefore rather generously. I stood there also without prejudice against the defendant. Inasmuch as he expects to spend the next twelve years at a place of residence where he will have little chance to read my writings, I may confess frankly that I liked the man. I was thus under the most favourable conditions for speaking the whole truth and nothing but the truth, and, as there is probably no need for the assurance of my best intentions, I felt myself somewhat alarmed in seeing how many illusions had come in. Of course I had not made any careful examination of the house. I had rushed in from the seashore as soon as the police notified me in the fear that valuable contents of the house might have been destroyed or plundered. When I saw that they had treated me mildly, inasmuch as they had started in the wine-cellar, and had forgotten under its genial influence on the whole what they had come for, I had taken only a superficial survey. That a clock was lying on the table, packed ready to be taken away, had impressed itself clearly on my memory. But that it was packed in a tablecloth had made evidently too slight an impression on my consciousness. My imagination gradually substituted the more usual method of packing with wrapping paper, and I was ready to take an oath on it, until I went back later, at the end of the summer vacation. In the same way I got a vivid image of the candle droppings on the floor, but as, at the moment of the perception, No interest was attached to the peculiar place where I saw them, I slowly substituted in my memory the second floor for the attic, knowing surely from strewn papers and other disorder that they had ransacked both places. As to the clothes, I had simply forgotten that I had put several suits in a remote wardrobe. Only later did I find it empty. My other two blunders clearly arose under the influence of suggestion. The police and everyone about the house had always taken as a matter of course that the entrance was made by a cellar window, as it would have been much more difficult to use the locked doors. I had thus never examined the other hypothesis, and yet it was found later that they did succeed in removing the lock of a door. And finally, my whole story under oath referred to two burglars without any doubt at the moment. The fact is... They had caught the gentleman in question, when he, a few days later, plundered another house. He then shot a policeman, but was arrested, and in his room they found a jacket with my name written in it by the tailor. That alone gave a hint that my house also had been entered, but from the first moment he insisted that there had been two in this burglary, and that the other man had the remainder of the booty. The other has not been found, and he probably still wears my badges, but I never heard any doubt as to his existence, and thus, in mere imagination, I never doubted that there was a companion, in spite of the fact that every part of the performance might just as well have been carried out by one man alone, and, after all, it is not impossible that he should lie as well as shoot and steal. In this way, in spite of my best intentions, In spite of good memory and calm mood, a whole series of confusions, of illusions, of forgetting, of wrong conclusions, and of yielding to suggestions was mingled with what I had to report under oath. And my only consolation is the fact that in a thousand courts, at a thousand places all over the world, witnesses every day affirm by oath in exactly the same way much worse mixtures of truth and untruth, combinations of memory and of illusion, of knowledge and of suggestion, of experience and wrong conclusions. Not one of my mistakes was of the slightest consequence. But is it probable that this is always so? Is it not more natural to suppose that every day errors creep into the work of justice through wrong evidence which has the outer marks of truth and trustworthiness? Of course judge and jury, and later the newspaper reader, try their best to weigh the evidence. Not every sworn statement is accepted as absolute reality. Contradictions between witnesses are too familiar. But the instinctive doubt refers primarily to veracity. The public in the main suspects that the witness lies, while taking for granted that if he is normal and conscious of responsibility he may forget a thing, but it would not believe that he could remember the wrong thing. The confidence in the reliability of memory is so general that the suspicion of memory illusions evidently plays a small role in the mind of the juryman, and even the cross-examining lawyer is mostly dominated by the idea that, A false statement is the product of intentional falsehood. All this is a popular illusion, against which modern psychology must seriously protest. Justice would less often miscarry if all who are to weigh evidence were more conscious of the treachery of human memory. Yes, it can be said that, while the court makes the fullest use of all the modern scientific methods, when, for instance, a drop of dried blood is to be examined in a murder case, the same court is completely satisfied with the most unscientific and haphazard methods of common prejudice and ignorance, when a mental product, especially the memory report of a witness, is to be examined. No juryman would be expected to follow his general impressions in the question as to whether the blood on the murderer's shirt is human or animal. But he is expected to make up his mind as to whether the memory ideas of a witness are objective reproductions of earlier experience, or are mixed up with associations and suggestions. The court proceeds as if the psychological chemistry of blood examination had made wonderful progress, while experimental psychology, with its efforts to analyze the mental faculties, still stood where it stood 2000 years ago. The fact is, that experimental psychology has not only in general experienced a wonderful progress during the last decades, but has also given in recent years an unusual amount of attention to just those problems which are involved on the witness stand. It is perhaps no exaggeration to say that a new special science has even grown up, which deals exclusively with the reliability of memory. It started in Germany, and has had there for some years even a magazine of its own. But many investigations in France and the United States tended from the start in the same direction, and the work spread rapidly over the psychological laboratories of the world. Rich material has been gathered, and yet practical jurisprudence is, on the whole, still unaware of it, and while the alienist is always a welcome guest in the courtroom, the psychologist is still a stranger here. The court would rather listen for whole days to the science of the handwriting experts than allow a witness to be examined with regard to his memory and his power of perception, his attention and his associations, his volition and his suggestibility, with methods which are in accord with the exact work of experimental psychology. It is so much easier everywhere to be satisfied with sharp demarcation lines and to listen only to a yes or no, the man is sane or insane, and if he is sane, he speaks the truth or he lies. The psychologist would upset this satisfaction completely. The administration of an oath is partly responsible for the wrong valuation of the evidence. Its seriousness and solemnity suggests that the conditions for complete truth are given if the witness is ready not to lie. We are too easily inclined to confuse the idea of truth in a subjective and in an objective sense. A German proverb says, children and fools speak the truth, and with it goes the old, in vino veritas. Of course, no one can suppose that children, fools and tipsy men have a deeper insight into true relations than the sober and grown-up remainder of mankind. What is meant is only that all the motives are lacking, which, in our social turmoil, may lead others to the intentional hiding of the truth. Children do not suppress the truth because they are naïve. The fools do not suppress it because they are reckless and the mind under the influence of wine does not suppress it, because the suppressing mechanism of inhibition is temporarily paralyzed by alcohol. The subjective truth may thus be secured, and yet the idle talk of the drunkard and the child and the fool may be objectively untrue from beginning to end. It is in this way only that the oath by its religious background and by its connection with threatened punishment can work for truth. It can and will remove to a high degree the intention to hide the truth, but it may be an open question to what degree it can increase the objective truthfulness. Of course everyone knows that the oath helps in at least one more direction in curbing misstatements. It not only suppresses the intentional lie, but it focuses the attention on the details of the statement. It excludes the careless, hasty, chance recollection and stirs the deliberate attention of the witness. He feels the duty of putting his best will into the effort to reproduce the whole truth and nothing but the truth. No psychologist will deny this effect. He will ask only whether the intention alone is sufficient for success, and whether the memory is really improved in every respect by increased attention. We are not always sure that our functions run best when we concentrate our effort on them and turn the full light of attention on the details. We may speak fluently, but the moment we begin to give attention to the special movements of our lips and of our tongue in speaking, and make a special effort to produce the movements correctly, we are badly hampered. Is it so sure that our memory works faultlessly simply because we earnestly want it to behave well? We may try hard to think of a name and it will not appear in consciousness, and when we have thought of something else for a long time, the desired name suddenly slips into our mind. May it not be in a similar way that the effort for correct recollection under oath may prove powerless to a degree which public opinion underestimates? And no subjective feeling of certainty can be an objective criterion for the desired truth. End of section three.